Ayn Rand was a radical thinker who challenged the fundamental political, moral, and metaphysical premises of our culture. But she also knew that a culture's philosophic premises are deeply entrenched, which makes cultural change very difficult to achieve. Some of Ayn Rand's own policy proposals can be considered from this perspective. And at the Ayn Rand Institute, we also consider the radical nature of our principles when we try to make policy proposals and communicate our ideas to a wider public. That is the topic that we would like to discuss on today's podcast. Welcome uh, to New Ideal Live, which is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. We're going to be discussing the topic, how radicals advocate for reform. My name is Ben Bayer. I am a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me today is my colleague, senior fellow at ARI, Ankar Gatte. Hi, Ankar, welcome. Hi, Ben. So this is an episode that we are doing today, which we periodically do, uh, the type we periodically do where we'd like to give our audience more transparency on the kind of thinking that we do when we decide how we communicate our very radical ideas to our wider audience. And um, Ankar, maybe to get us started, it would be helpful just to remind everyone how radical the principles uh, that we're trying to educate people about are, how radical Ayn Rand's ideas are in this, in this cultural context. It's a whole philosophy, which she called objectivism. And a philosophy is going down to fundamental issues. So radical in this sense means going down to the root going down to rock bottom is a philosophical viewpoint going down to the root. And she opposes the main currents in contemporary thought and thinking of these currents as going back 2000 years. So just to, to one way that Ayn Rand would often encapsulate objectivism is that it advocates capitalism in politics. It advocates egoism in ethics or morality. It advocates reason in epistemology. So about how you reach knowledge, it's reason and only reason. And it advocates reality, which means this world. And there's only this world. The, the existence is not split into two dimensions. This is a really radical viewpoint. So capitalism means complete laissez-faire capitalism. One of the ways she would often put it, when, again, when she's encapsulating her ideas is it means a complete, complete separation of state and economics in the same way and for the same reasons as the separation of state from church or state from religion. So that's like what she's advocating is radically different than what we have today. It's often called a mixed economy where there's so much interconnection between government power and economics. And she's saying you should have a complete separation. That's the ideal that we should be moving towards. And then in ethics, it's egoism, or put it, she'll put it sometimes in a more, the more controversial, provocative way, selfishness. So her views not um, give uh, voluntarily engage in self-sacrifice and giving away your time and effort. It's, it's wrong, whether it's forced or you choose to do it. You should be selfish pursuing your own happiness in life. That's radically different than what people think. And then in the deeper branches, part of her advocacy of reason as your only means to knowledge, and there's only this world, is a complete rejection of atheism 
of every form of religion and mysticism. And again, if you, you think rejection of, of atheism, you mean a rejection of theism. Yeah, sorry, rejection of theism. Yeah. Um, so in Advent, it's embrace of atheism, that there is no supernatural dimension, supernatural being. This again, and particularly in America, is such a radical viewpoint. So when we when she said she's challenging the mainstream of the intellectual currents in Western society that go back 2000 years, these ideas have a long history. And she's saying not like they're a little wrong, they're fundamentally wrong. So this is a really radical position. Yeah, and it, it sounds like be, because it's so radical, if, if say American society were to suddenly adopt uh, these principles, it would look very different from what we have today. It would, it would mean radical transformation of our existing culture, our existing economy, our existing political system. Um, but notably, for reasons we're going to discuss, she doesn't think that radical transformation is something that can happen overnight. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the fact that she thinks the, what, what causes uh, radical transformation is, uh, is, is radical, a radical change of people's minds about some of these philosophical ideas. And so I think one thing we should take a look at now, and I think and there's some really interesting examples of this to consider, how she practiced uh, the attempt to change people's minds, how it is that she thought she could achieve some at least measure of change in her lifetime uh, by looking at the way she advocated for it. Uh, and there's a number of different policy proposals of hers that we should look at to understand how this works. Um, Ankar, you mentioned uh, at the top of your summary her advocacy of laissez-faire capitalism, which is, which is a very radical idea. Uh, one interesting example of a policy that she pushed for in light of this set of principles uh, was the repeal of antitrust laws. Uh, antitrust laws, of course, are kind of the essentially uh, anti-capitalist policy. They're the idea, they're based on the idea that capitalists are robber barons who want to control our lives uh, through their uh, productive uh, capacities. And interestingly, and, and we've had them since the 1890s, both of the major political parties are agreed in one way or another that monopoly power, alleged monopoly power is a threat and needs to be reined in uh, through the antitrust laws. And we've seen this, I think, most recently with the various antitrust uh, efforts that have been undertaken against the big tech companies. Um, but yes, she argued that ultimately all antitrust laws should be repealed because they are manifestly unjust violations of the rights of business people uh, and th their right to uh, produce and to achieve and to be and to uh, deserve the products of their achievements. Um, but interestingly, when you look at some of the things that she wrote on this, she recognizes that the kind of opposition she's facing on this, she recognizes that everybody disagrees with her on this topic. And while she says the ultimate goal is the repeal of antitrust laws, she thinks that's going to take a long battle and that uh, you need to take steps toward achieving that goal. In particular, in a uh, essay that she wrote, uh, in a couple of essays that she wrote, but in particular, the uh, antitrust, the rule of unreason, she says that the first step 
uh, in, uh, toward achieving this ultimate goal is ending the jail penalty provisions of the antitrust laws. She's acknowledging that these are going to be very difficult to repeal, uh, but that at least you can blunt the worst of the injustice associated with these laws by uh, not making them like a criminal offense, uh, maybe maybe have them be a civil offense or something like that. So uh, thoughts on um, her perspective on that issue and how this reflects her overall view about persuasion and about cultural political change? I think it's important to note that she's doing both things. So she's in her career as a nonfiction writer, she's advocating both for laissez-faire capitalism and writing on that and what laissez-faire capitalism means, why the, the conventional conception of monopoly is wrong, which this is part of sort of the long-term battle against antitrust, because part of what it's so supposed to be trust busting, one way you can put that in a more modern way is it's monopoly busting. And if the way you think about monopolies is wrong, then you're going to think you, there's things that exist that don't, and you need laws to protect you against that. So she's fighting it long term, but she's also fighting it short term. And there she doesn't think it's in a, in a year or something, you can change the economic and philosophical ideas about monopoly. But she does think that you can exhibit enough of the injustice of antitrust laws that you can get people on board that, yes, yeah, some real reform is needed here, that they won't be at, yet at the level of we need to get rid of antitrust laws, but they need to be reformed. And it's interesting what she does showcase then, like part of the injustice. I think when she, she really highlights the fact that no businessman can know before acting whether what they are doing violates the antitrust laws or not. Um, so it's only when it goes to court and a judge rules, then it's, oh, it turns out that that was illegal what I was doing. And one of the kinds of examples she brings up, and there's many such in antitrust law, is that you can be convicted of violating the law if you set prices below your competitors at the same level as your competitors or above your competitors. All, there's various aspects of the law that could be interpreted as, yeah, no, this is you're engaged in trying to create a monopoly. And so you can't, no matter what price you set, you don't know if it's legal or illegal. And there's something really, really bad in a legal system that's supposed to be uh, about the rule of law, pro-reason, pro-rights, where you, even if you wanna comply with the law, you don't know what to do in order to comply with it. And that, and then you're gonna have a jail sentences for these people, that's part of what she's arguing. And it's, so she thinks, she can win people over to that in the shorter term. And they're not yet convinced, let's get rid of antitrust as such. But she's also arguing that. And she's arguing, not just saying that like, this is my position, but she's arguing for it. And I think that's typical of how she approaches issues like this. Let's talk about another policy uh, proposal of hers uh, where she's, she's applying some, I think all of the the radical principles that we talked about at the top, and that's uh, her view on abortion. She was very outspoken, outspoken on this topic. Uh, and it, it's her view that women have the right to elect an abortion, actually up until birth, is uh, 
supported by her view of individual rights, the same principle that underpins her advocacy of capitalism, also by her egoism, because the point of rights is to allow one to live a selfish uh, life in the pursuit of their own happiness, and also notably her advocacy of reason and atheism, because she doesn't buy any of the claims that the fetus has some kind of right to life from conception because God gave it to it. So she, she, she said, she spoke out a lot on this topic, but one thing that I found interesting to look at was a, a very, an underappreciated short article that she wrote back in uh, 1969 in her periodical, The Objectivist. Uh, it's just called A Suggestion. And she's writing about a bill that is being debated currently in the, at the time in the New York State Legislature that would reform the abortion laws in that state. Uh, they had previously been very draconian uh, in the kinds of abortion they uh, prohibited. Uh, at one point in this short article, she says, because of the injustice of uh, what it means to restrict a woman's uh, right to control her reproductive capacities, the laws against abortion should be totally repealed. That's the first thing that she says, and that's consonant with everything else she wrote on this topic. However, she also acknowledges that that's a position that's hard for a lot of people to swallow. It's not politically realistic at the time. Uh, and she sees a proposal that's on the table at the time uh, to modify the abortion laws, to allow exceptions uh, for when pregnancy would endanger both the physical and the mental health of the woman as a important step forward. The way she puts it is such a clause would protect a woman from lifelong despair and would give her a chance to reassert her rights. So it's a step forward toward what she thinks is the, here the ultimate goal, total abolition of abortion laws. But she's, she's willing to endorse this particular political proposal uh, uh, in order to at least move the needle forward toward that goal. Uh, thoughts here, Ankar, on how this exemplifies her approach to advocacy for policy? These, these first two examples, so antitrust and now abortion, I think are the easier examples to see, or they're easier from this perspective, that what she's arguing is, yeah, we should get rid of the laws prohibiting abortion completely or the laws against antitrust completely. That's a longer term battle. But in the shorter term, we can mitigate some of the damage that these laws do. That is, we can defang them a little bit, take some power away from government that it is currently wielding but should not be able to wield and reduce that. So antitrust, it's, yeah, it will still be there, but you can't put these people in jail when you uh, find them in violation of law. And so same in regard to abortion, we're not getting rid of it, but at least in certain cases and so on, it will be know that there's not this power to prohibit what individuals should be able to do. So those are the easiest cases when what it, because it's clear it's a step in the direction that the, the long range direction that you want to go. So you can view these both, I think easily as a step towards getting rid of these laws completely. If you're moving in that direction and so, that's the easiest case. The more difficult cases are when you can argue, or it's arguable, is this a step in the right direction or not? And she does advocate things when it, that, it, that's more complicated to figure out. But I think part of the reason to start with these are the, from that perspective, they're the easier ones to think about. 
So uh, regarding the, the harder ones to think about it, uh, it, it seems she had some proposals about education policy uh, that, where this, it's, it's, it's not obvious what the way forward is. Um, maybe we should talk about those next. Yeah, so, and she has two proposals and it's kind of two policy proposals that she wrote a fair amount on. I mean, she wrote articles on. Take the first one, which is easier, I think, to get what she's advocating and why. It's, uh, it, it will, she'll put it as it's tax credits for education. So she argues, and not just in that essay, she argues in many essays that public education is, um, it's almost counterproductive. So I was gonna put it, it's not doing its job, but it, it's worse than that in that she thinks in various ways it's undermining people's ability to think. So you're going into schools hoping to develop intellectually and in many ways it's stunting people's ability to develop. And she thought that from basically from the start of public education, so kindergarten or all the way to higher education, when the government gets involved in it, it's not just like it's suboptimal, like the post office say compared to UPS, it's that it's actually destructive. So she wrote a lot about why she thought public education is destroying young people's minds. And in that context, she thought that to get ways for people to um, not be as great victims of public education as they are, the policy proposals are important. And even if it's not, again, so the long range goal here is that you would abolish public education. Education would be private. You'd have private schools from kindergarten, pre-kindergarten, all the way to colleges and universities. That's a long-term goal where that, I mean, much harder than just say abolishing antitrust or getting better abortion laws. This is a whole rethinking of education and government's role in it. So it, this is a much longer term uh, project, I think, that she think. I think she thinks if we're going in the right way, we could get rid of the laws against abortion and against antitrust fairly quickly. The getting to a level of it's completely private education would take decades. Um, and in that context, it's important to think about like what are shorter term things that can be done that will make the situation better. And tax credits for education is that the parents would get a credit if they're spending education for their kids to private schools and the tuition they're paying and so it would be a tax credit so that in, in, in effect, instead of being taxed to support the public schools, they would get some of that tax money back and be able to invest it in private education for their children. It's important even in this regard to think she's advocating tax credits for education, not vouchers, not government handing vouchers to everybody. And this is the kind of issue where you have to, for vouchers, you have to think, so are we really diminishing government's control over education or are we just shifting it? And now it's, it has it in one form and now it will have, okay, it's giving everyone vouchers the vouchers will have strings attached. They'll tell you which schools you can use them at and which you can't and so on. 
And that's just another form of government control. You're not, it, it's, you're kind of fooling yourself that you're moving in a positive direction. So I don't think it's an accident that she's advocating tax credits and not vouchers because tax credits more easily allow that it's just the parent who decides and they get a credit, but the government's not involved in, the, in kind of dispersing the funds and so on. It's you keep the money because you, on your taxes, you pay less in tax. But that's the kind of it that, that this, it's more complicated, I think, than um, thinking about what she advocates for abortion or antitrust and thinking, is this a step towards freedom or not? Is this mitigating the disaster that is public education or not? Yeah, it's uh, just to add something about how this is complicated. You mentioned if you're advocating vouchers, it seems like it would be easier for the government to attach strings to it, and that would end up being a different form of control over, over even the private education system. Part of the reason it seems like this is still not, that her proposal is not obvious, is that government can put conditions on tax credits too, and, and that, can be, uh, that can amount to the same kind of thing. Now, maybe the way the system is currently set up, it's harder for it to do that, and that's a reason to prefer it, but it's still not obvious. Uh, and it's, it's, it's also worth pointing out that she in making this claim, she has to disclaim the fact and she does in the article very explicitly. I don't advocate public education in a free economy. This wouldn't exist. Income tax wouldn't exist. There wouldn't be any me mechanism for implementing the kind of policy that I'm talking about here. So she's very much seeing it as a way to uh, avert a, an immediate catastrophe is the way she puts it in the article. Um, and going to the point about uh, the possibility of making bigger changes and achieving the ultimate goal of abolishing public education, you have to think about the difference between this kind of policy and the, the previous ones, because I mean, public education is something that's been around for uh, over 100 years, if not 200, depending upon how you think about it in the US. Uh, even Thomas Jefferson was in favor of it. So, you know, someone who otherwise you, she would ally with politically. Uh, so it's, it's another one of these issues where everybody on both sides of the fence uh, is in, 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 in favor of it. And so she's recognizing she's really going um, against the current on this one. And, uh, and the policy here isn't even, this isn't even a means to the end of dismantling uh, public education. It's a means of blunting the worst effects of it. Um, but there's more that she had to say, uh, to propose about education. Did you want to share the other one? Yeah, the, the other one I think is even more debatable about the, the actual policy proposal, though she makes a convincing case. So this is, she advocates of the, for the fairness doctrine for education. And it's again, you, you said in regard to the tax credits that she talks about it, that put, we're in a state of near catastrophe in education. This she stresses that that's her view for particularly for this is aimed at higher uh, level education. So basically university college education, the proposal. And it's likened to, so there was the a fairness doctrine for the Federal Communication Commission, FCC. And so she's writing at a time when the FCC had an incredible power over you can put a mass media in the US, particularly the airwaves, television, radio. 
And this is a time, like it's a little hard to imagine for people who've grown up with the internet, but there's a time there's three broadcasters and that's it. Like you turn into ABC or NBC or CBS and that's what you get. Those are your choices. And the FCC is controlling programming on TV in part through licensing. So it, it has enormous control over the thought and speech going on in mass media. She argued against this. She argued it's a tremendous violation of the First Amendment. She argued that the FCC should be abolished. There should be no such government control over speech and communication. But there was. And a way of mitigating the disasters that such government control creates was the, this, there's a fairness doctrine that the FCC in making decisions, who's gonna get licenses, who can broadcast on TV, what kind of content is there going to be, what's acceptable versus unacceptable content. The fairness doctrine was you have to allow opposing views, opposing ideas, opposing positions. So it can't be that the government just picks, oh yeah, we agree with this person, what they're advocating, and about it can be about anything, what they're advocating. That, so it's a way to try to mitigate the government um, deciding what content is acceptable or not. I mean, it, the way the Supreme Court often puts it is laws need to be content neutral. It's impossible for the FCC to be operating in a content neutral way, but the fairness doctrine was a way to try to make it a little more that it allows a range of different views, ideas, and opposing um, viewpoints. And she said, that it's even more important to the direction of a country than it's what's happening on mass media and the airwaves is what's happening in education. And with government gaining increasing control over higher education, and this was at a period when the funding of higher education by government is growing rapidly, and they will say it, funding has no strings attached, but she understood well that by its very nature, when you're giving money, there's strings attached and you're exert, you will exert control about what will be taught. That what we're getting more and more is a monopoly in the field of education, that there's, it's one dominant viewpoint in the different, uh, uh, some of the things she brings up in, in economics, in philosophy, in um, uh, literature, what's taught is too much one viewpoint or one school of thought, if you want to broaden it a little bit, or one or two. And that what we need in a time of real crisis is something like the Fairness Doctrine for education, that it should be that this is, would be a way for people to advocate for a wider range of viewpoints and ideas, particularly fundamentally different viewpoints, approaches, schools of thought that they be taught in the universities. And she viewed it as um, this is pressure group warfare. I mean, that's what happens when government takes control of field after field. People vie for saying, this is how that control should be exerted. I want it done in this kind of way. And she viewed that there was a real push to gain a monopoly in education 
this was a way to retard that process, like slow it down, not even reverse it, but slow it down so that people with dissenting viewpoints still have some chance in a government controlled education. And she said it won't work well, but it, because she thought this is like, we're in a real crisis, something like this is better than nothing. So she stressed, like, I'm not an advocate of a mixed economy. I'm not an advocate of pressure groups. I'm not an advocate. The government should have this kind of control that you then lobby how to use that control. Um, so it's very interesting to read her article on this and what she what she's arguing about this. But that like this is even more controversial, I think, than tax credits to have like, this is a policy pr proposal that is on the side of freedom. Yeah, it's it's controversial for me. So like I don't it's not obvious to me, for instance, why if a uh, university were mandated to have a say a uh, token number of conservative professors in addition to the standard liberal leftist ones, whether that would hurt or harm, say, the cause of objectivists in academia, because you could think, well, okay, they've got their token conservatives, uh, which are mainstream, but now objectivism looks really radical. And so now we have even less chance than we did of, of getting representation in these uh, universities before. That's just not clear. And yeah, anytime government starts to be the arbiter, even of the ideas that they want to have uh, that they, that they think are representative of a diversity of viewpoints, uh, you're in trouble. At the same time, yeah, uh, it, it would seem crazy to say that you shouldn't try to come up with some kind of half, half measures to blunt the worst of what's going on in the universities. I mean, sort of the uh, reductio ad, ad absurdum of this uh, is, or of the idea that you shouldn't try is You've got um, student protesters and rioters occupying public university campuses in the 1960s. And you, you can't say, oh, it's, it, these are public schools, therefore they can do whatever they want to. No, she, she advocates explicitly uh, the, the boards of trustees of these universities, they have to have some kinds of rules, they have to enforce you know, in some way the idea that the purpose of these universities is education, and so they should be able to kick out the protesters and the occupiers. Um, that's sort of an obvious one, but when, when you get to the point of what kind of stuff should be on the curriculum, it's actually going to you know, represent a, some kind of half decent education uh, of future citizens. Uh, it's a lot murkier as to what government's role in, in that could ever possibly be or whether there's something that could be uh, uh, better than worse. Yeah, and she makes the comparison to the, these kinds of protests which she thinks are illegitimate on campus that she thinks the a fairness doctrine in education would empower the better students. So she thinks it's the worst students, the hippies who have been brainwashed by mainstream education. She did not view them as re rebellious or radical. She thought they're just echoing what they've been taught and taking it seriously in a sense, but they're, they're, they're the products of the system, not rebels against it. But the people who are actual victims of the system, the students who go to university expecting a real education, not indoctrination, so that they'll be exposed to a range of fundamentally different viewpoints, encouraged to think about those and make up their mind, that the Fairness Doctrine would empower them to protest and legitimately protest, not, not um, kind of physical occupation of buildings, so on, but to protest that the, the curriculum is too, it's been monopolized 
and it needs a wider range of fundamentally different viewpoints. And that's part of her proposal. Like it's empowering the better people to protest for the supposedly they and their parents are being taxed for this education. So to get a real education. Definitely an interesting proposal. Um, let's talk about one last uh, proposal that she made. And this one is now with regard to foreign policy. And it's one where, uh, I mean, if you thought the, uh, the crisis in higher education was a unfixable dilemma, what happened during the Vietnam War perhaps is even more so. And uh, for this one, I wanna actually put on screen a few passages of uh, an article of hers where she tackles this issue, uh, just because I think there's so much uh, rich commentary here on different facets of the situations. This is from her essay, The Wreckage of the Consensus, which appeared in her periodical, The Objectivist in May, 1967. And so having discussed the, 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 the many dilemmas and tragedies of the war, she says the following. She says, no, there's no proper solution for the war in Vietnam. It is a war we should never have entered. To continue it is senseless. To withdraw from it would be one more act of appeasement on our long shameful record. She goes on, this is an example of why we do need a policy based on long range principles, i.e. an ideology, but a revision of our foreign policy from its basic premises on up is what today's anti-ideologists dare not contemplate. A proper solution would be to elect statesmen, if such appeared, with a radically different foreign policy, a policy explicitly and proudly dedicated to the defense of America's rights and national self-interests, repudiating foreign aid and all forms of international self-immolation. On such a policy, we could withdraw from Vietnam at once, and the withdrawal would not be misunderstood by anyone, and the world would have a chance to achieve peace. But such statesmen do not exist at present. In today's conditions, the only alternative is to fight that war and win it as fast as possible, and thus gain time to develop new statesmen with a new foreign policy before the old one pushes us into another Cold War, just as the Cold War in Korea pushed us into Vietnam. The institution that enables our leaders to indulge in such recklessly irresponsible ventures is the military draft. Of all the status violations of individual rights in a mixed economy, the military draft is the worst. Without the power to draft, the makers of the, our foreign policy would not be able to embark on adventures of that kind. This is one of the best practical reasons for the abolition of the draft. So number of interesting things to notice about what's going on here. So she, she has an ideal that she states. The principle is America's foreign policy should be dedicated to the protection of the interests and the rights of its, its own citizens. This war is not motivated by that principle. And the obvious solution she thinks, which is not workable, would be is if we had better politicians who understood this principle and who on the basis of that principle announced to the world their reasons for withdrawing from the war. But we don't have those politicians and they're not drawing on those principles and we're not going to get them anytime soon. And so what do we do? Uh, there she thinks if you're gonna choose between these two terrible uh, sides of the dilemma, um, fighting in a, in a uh, hopeless way that, um, that costs so much or just withdrawing in a way that appeases the enemy, she sides for the first uh, and, and for the reasons that she states to at least buy us time uh, to develop a, a better policy. Uh, but she does make the additional proviso at the end, but if we're gonna do that, we've at least got to uh, defang the worst 
injustice of the war, which is the draft, which is the worst violation of people's uh, rights. And uh, so it, in a way it's a, uh, a half measure because it's not going to get an end to the war in a way that solves the problem, but at least it's, but it's also a pretty radical half measure because it's calling for the abolition of a, of a, of a government policy that's been around for a hundred years at this point. Um, and which again, both sides of the spectrum were in support of at the time. Um, but there's, there's more nuance here too. So Ankar, do you want to say more about it? Say something first about just the way she's thinking about Vietnam, because I wasn't sure exactly what you said in terms of how she's thinking of the options. I do think she's presenting a third option, but a third option that she thinks would be possible in the, in the actual circumstances. So she's presenting more than three options. Uh, um, a fourth option, which she says is not viable, is to have politicians advocate the right principles for our foreign policy. And then that, if we did that, we could withdraw right now and there wouldn't be any misunderstanding that we think we're defeated, um, that we can't win, and so on. I think the third option is not keep fighting as we were fighting in Vietnam. It's actually pursue victory, which means crushing the Viet Cong, not fight them to a stalemate and, and drag on the war and so on. It, it's, so part of what was monstrous about that war is the very goal is not a self-interested goal. It's not the, the idea that we have to fight the communists in Vietnam, like that's in US interest. But communism, when it's swallowing parts of Europe and other places, we don't fight that. And in various ways, we appease it. So it's not in our interest. And then you send soldiers there and give them kind of battlefield instructions that they can't actually win. They can't defeat the enemy, even if it's not in our self-interest to defeat these communists, we could still have defeated them. So I think what she's advocating is, we go and we actually fight to win, which is not what we were doing, but yeah, is politically feasible with some politicians with some backbone, not the right principles, but. Um, and there the, um, when like part of how we got into Vietnam is the really bad thinking about foreign policy. And that's gonna take a lot to change. But a shorter term solution that it would be easier to win people over to is that the draft is un-American, is one way to put it, that you're going to draft people, compel them to serve in the military, that this elevates the government above the individual and says you exist for the purposes and goals of the government. And that's such an un-American idea that I think she thought it, this is politically feasible that we could end the draft and you could get enough um, support for this sort of from across the American public that this is possible. That's not the same as we'll have a proper foreign policy. Um, and uh, it's a little strong what she says about what ending the draft will do. I mean, in essence, I agree with all the reasons she presents. She presents both the, the moral case for this of why it is so un-American if you take seriously the Declaration of Independence and individual rights that's supposed to be the foundation of the American system of government. And it's practically bad militarily. And one of the points she makes is that 
the the more sophisticated elements of the armed forces want volunteers because they want professional soldiers who can be trained to to operate on the modern battlefield. But part of what you quoted was that she thinks that this will, without a draft, our foreign policy would not embark on adventures of that kind. So like Vietnam. And I think she's maybe a little too um, uh, um, what, what, optimistic of how bad our foreign policy can become because something like Afghanistan that has many similarities to Vietnam and we're 20 years there and then we withdraw and not even a stalemate is basically Taliban sw sweeps in and so on. That was possible even without the draft. So it's not clear that the draft ends all of these things. I think it makes it harder to have something as disastrous as Vietnam, but um, the, the fundamental is we need a pro-America, pro-self-interest foreign policy. And when you don't have that, you can embark on all kinds of disastrous wars. And it, that has happened post-Vietnam, even without the draft. The one thing she was clearly right about was the political feasibility of ending the draft, because it actually happens. And very interestingly, it happens because there, at least in part because, there are people in objectivist circles who are listening to Ayn Rand's own arguments on this point who are also working behind the scenes in the Nixon administration and who are instrumental in actually convincing that, uh, that president to end the draft. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a big change that happens in her lifetime um, and which has, I think, had enormously positive uh, benefits. I mean, there are a lot of people uh, my age uh, and younger who, who could have been drafted, you know, for the Afghanistan war, for the Iraq war, or the Gulf war, um, who are alive today because they weren't. And it's incalculable uh, what kind of effect that has had for the better on our, um, our culture and our economy and, and, and whatnot. So it's, that's a really interesting um, policy example to look at. Um, but I think we should maybe, uh, before we move on, just kind of summarize a few takeaways from this variety of uh, policy proposals. I mean, some things they all have in common, what she says about them. She, she always makes clear what her radical principles are and how that guides us toward a long-term ultimate goal with regard to changing them. But in each case, she's also realizing what the immediate cultural obstacles are to that change, um, especially because of her view that that it's, it's ultimately philosophy that is empowering the current policy and that to change that policy, you need to change people's philosophies. And that's not something that uh, happens overnight. However, there's still some kind of incremental change in the direction of the goal that's possible and a kind of change that might actually help people think more clearly about what the principles uh, at stake are. Uh, she's, and she's always uh, making her proposals with a view to what's possible to persuade people about and what it takes to change people's minds about these kinds of issues. So we, we should actually, there's a few, a couple of things I want to share on this broader issue. Um, her view about what makes cultural change possible uh, and what doesn't and, and what the implications of that are for 
persuasion and for how you go about advocating for policy change. So uh, I think it's worth putting the next quote up on the screen. This is from her essay, What Can One Do? Uh, and she's, she's writing this in response to uh, readers who've asked her that very question, given the nature of all the problems that we face in our culture and all the irrational policies, how can we do anything to change them? And she says, no one can change a country single-handed. So the first question to ask is why do people approach the problem this way? It's a remnant of mystic philosophy, specifically of the mind-body split that makes people approach intellectual issues in a manner they would not use to deal with physical problems. They would not seek to stop an epidemic overnight or to build a skyscraper single-handed, nor would they refrain from re renovating their own crumbling house on the grounds that they are unable to rebuild the entire city. But in the realm of man's consciousness, the realm of ideas, they still tend to regard knowledge as irrelevant and they expect to perform instantaneous miracles somehow, or they paralyze themselves by projecting an impossible goal. And Ankar, I suspect the, the kind of thing she's talking about here is the people who think, well, if only we get the right politician uh, into office, or, or, or if we start up a new political party uh, that, that uh, of people who are on our side, then there will, will be able to have this magical kind of instantaneous effect on the culture. But she's pointing out, in effect, well, who's going to vote for these people if they really do agree with us? Uh, and if we're talking about the politicians who are around today, how many of them actually do? Uh, all these people, the most of these people, have really bad ideas informed by principles that are the opposite of her radical principles. And you're not going to expect radical change from them unless uh, people, we, we start to have new generations of politicians who are informed by a very different uh, way of thinking. And that's not coming down the pike for many, many years. Thoughts on that broader issue? Uh, I think part of what is interesting in the way she's looking at it, and it's characteristic really of objectivism, as a philosophic system, it's trying to integrate the long range and the short range. So it's the short range perspective is that, yeah, some we get some politician in office or we get we change some of the figures, the, the, the kind of leaders in the media or the newspapers or TV, what have you. And yeah, then things will change overnight. And that's not understanding the role of ideas in driving people's actions and therefore the, the trajectory their lives take and the trajectory that the culture and the nation takes as a result. She argues again and again, and this essay is reprinted in Philosophy Who Needs It, which is the whole book is about how philosophical ideas shape long range trends. In a, in a nation, particularly in America, but, but in the world. So she's focused on the long range, but people can easily take that as in a defeatist way. It's, I, you have to change people's ideas and that takes a lot of time and it's a long range activity. And they translate that into, so there's nothing you can do in the short range. And her perspective is, no, that's not how doctors think. This is the, the comparison to an epidemic. It's, yeah, it might take a long time to get this under control, but the fact that it takes a long time to get it under control doesn't mean there's no short range things you need to do. You have to do things in the here and now if you're gonna have a long-term effect. And it's, so it's integrating those two that she's really stressing. And it's notable as we were talking about in terms of just 
things she advocated for. She advocates for a long range, radical shift in direction for America. But she also advocates for short range things that she thinks are politically and culturally viable, that there's a possibility that these could happen. It takes real activity on the part of people. It takes activity to end the draft. It takes people arguing and advocating for that, to try to reform antitrust. It would take people to do that, to get tax credit for education. It would take it, so it takes a lot of effort, but it's short range activity in the context and with a vision of a long range goal. And that's what she's really stressing and that people either look to the long range and then think there's nothing you can do in the short range or they want a shortcut and as though there is no long range. And if we just change a few things in the here and now, everything will change. And that's not, neither is true. And it's, she's trying to get people to see that neither of those are true. And there's a third approach. And one of the things that you can do to integrate the short range with the long range uh, which involves the possibility of real short-term change is the use that you can make of current events uh, for changing people's minds now. You might not be able to change the policies, but you can talk about the policies that are happening now in a way that helps people see new things about some of the philosophic issues that they might not have seen before. And that relates to uh, a last quotation that I wanted to share. This is from the same essay, also from What, uh, what Can One Do? And here's a, a practical course of action that she recommends in connection with this issue. She says, if you want to influence a, co a country's intellectual trend, if we can put that slide up on the screen, would be good. If you want to influence a country's intellectual trend, the first step is to bring order to your own ideas and integrate them into a consistent case to the best of your knowledge and ability. This one, uh, this does not mean memorizing or reciting slogans and principles, objectivist or otherwise. Knowledge necessarily includes the ability to apply abstract principles to concrete problems, to recognize the principles in specific issues, to demonstrate them and to advocate a consistent course of action. She goes on to say, when or if your convictions are in your conscious orderly control, you will be able to communicate them to others. If you like condensations, provided you bear in mind their full meaning, I will say, when you ask, what can one do? The answer is speak, provided you know what you are saying. And uh, Ankar, this is something I think she, this is advice that she practiced in the policy commentary that we talked about above, that she's, she's looking carefully at the current policies. She's looking at what causes, uh, what their causes are. She's trying to understand their effects. She's projecting what a long-term change for the better would look like uh, using her principles. And by way of commenting on those concrete policies, she's, she's trying to convey to her readers uh, an under, a better understanding of those principles, the various principles, the competing principles philosophically that are at play. Do you agree with that? Yes, and I think then you can think of policy proposals as a concrete under this broader, what can you do? She says, speak. So it's speak about the actual issues that are being discussed and debated among people. So something like the draft, I mean, that was a major topic of conversation when families and, and individuals across America are worried about being drafted and sent to Vietnam, like how to think about this and is a draft proper? And is it true that we would not have any military defense without a draft? This was a major topic 
And can you shed light on this topic when you discuss it with people? Can you um, address the kinds of concerns, the counter arguments to why we need a draft? And so that's part of what it means to speak. And kind of a aspect of that is, okay, so like what would be better policy proposal? If we don't have a draft, how would the military work? And to think about that, that no, a volunteer army does work um, and there's historical precedent for some of it. And so it's, so the, the policy angle is one aspect of really having thought about the issue and to speak provided you know what you're saying. Part of what you have to think about is if these policies are wrong, what would be better policies and both in the short term and long term. So even if it's abolish, uh, to go back to a different issue, abolish public education. In the short term, what could you do that moves to, towards more freedom and a better situation than what we have at present? And you need to have thought about some of that if you're if people are going to take you seriously and think, oh yeah, you do have an interesting different view here. Um, that's what it means when she says, provided you know what you're saying, that's part of what it means to know what you're saying. Yeah, people, part of what it means to, uh, part of why she's considering, well, you just mentioned people are going to take you seriously. So it's it's not just an issue of, provided you know what you're saying, but also why are you saying it? What are you hoping to accomplish by saying it to someone? What kind of change is actually possible in their mind, given the other things that you know uh, they think, and especially when you know that they are, if they're average person, probably have uh, a lot of the philosophic prejudices that you're trying to combat. And, and this is one of the reasons why in, in, in other places, especially in her nonfiction writing uh, course, she talks about the importance of thinking carefully about your audience and what do they know, what's in their context, what isn't. Um, some things are gonna be more obvious to them, some things are gonna be less. You mentioned the example of everybody in the, in the 60s is, is thinking about and talking about the draft. So this is something they, they've got an opinion on and, and they're, looking at, they're looking for ways to solve this problem. And so that's a possibility for objectivists to enter into the equation, uh, shed some light on the current uh, concrete uh, controversy and uh, perhaps in the course of doing that, educate them about these, these principles that could help solve uh, this, this policy. But you've got to think about your audience while you're doing this. If you, if, you think your if you want your communication to actually achieve some kind of purpose. Um, and so with, with that in mind, uh, Ankar, I thought we would finish up today by talking about uh, uh, how we at ARI apply some of these insights into purposeful communication in our commentary on policy that we've, I think, learned from Ayn Rand and what she did when we talk about uh, policy ourselves. And I, I know that you wanted to start off by talking about the example of uh, something that's already come up, foreign policy, especially how we've talked over the years about 9-11 and the issues of uh, Islamic terrorism. We, we at ARI spent a significant amount of time and resources on the issue of 9-11, how to think about it, what a proper response would be, and how to analyze the actual American response, or more broadly, you could say the response, the world response to 9-11. And we did so because, in, in part, because this is exactly what a philosophy is supposed to do. So Ayn Rand argued 
that a proper philosophy is for the sake of guidance. She said, I formally call my philosophy objectivism, but formally, in, sorry, informally, I call it a philosophy for living on earth. It's supposed to help you understand and therefore guide your actions and life in the world. This 9-11 was a major event and it was seen as so at the time and rightly that this is an attack, a major attack on American soil. There's some recognition, even if it's not analyzed properly, that it's our foreign policy that has led up to this, that it's not that this didn't just come out of the blue and there were precursor attacks and we had been embroiled in the Middle East for decades, in certain ways retreating from it. Uh, we were viewed as a paper tiger. So, so it was like, there's something about how we've been conducting our for, foreign policy and thinking of America that has led to this. It's a major attack on US soil. And it was rightly thought slash felt that our response to this will not just be have consequences in the short term. So it's not just, will we be able to apprehend or kill Osama bin Laden? It's, this is gonna set our policy and, and policy in the sense of what we're willing to do in action when we're attacked on our own soil in this massive way. So it, we thought, and we certainly, of course, we're not alone in thinking, this is a significant event and how people think of it will have real significant ramifications for decades. And it was clear in the immediate aftermath that it's not going to be thought about well. So part of what, why we spent a lot of time advocating for what is a proper way to think about what led up to 9-11 and as a consequence, what we should do in response to the attacks in the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and so on. We spend a lot of time on it to both showcase this is um, the power of philosophical ideas for good or bad, that if you have a better philosophical ideas, they will help you understand why 9-11 happened and what we have to do if we're gonna stop another 9-11 from happening. And from the other side, it's, it's bad or wrong philosophical ideas that have led us to 9-11, that have shaped our foreign policy. And if they continue to shape it, 9-11 is going to prove to be um, a turning point, but a turning point for the worse, that we will confirm to the world and to America's enemies that, it, that they're right to view us as a paper tiger. And if you fast forward to 20 years and what happened in Afghanistan, that's exactly that if we don't have the proper principles shaping our foreign policy, the outcome is going to be a Vietnam-like outcome where it seems like we've been defeated or at least we can't win and we're, we're leaving with our tail tucked between our legs. And that will just embolden the, the leaders of these um, movements that, see, we told you they're a paper tiger and we can outlast them and we can endure. And that just helps them recruit people to their cause. 
So we spend a lot of time on it because it's just, it's, it's significant. It should have been seen as significant by any American. And you can't understand this issue without thinking about it philosophically. And part of that is showcasing, this is what, how proper philosophical principles light your way and how improper ones lead you astray. So we advocate both, so it has both kind of policy proposals, but the wider thing is, this is the power of philosophy. And this is why you should care about philosophy um, and care about the, what it advocates because it has consequences for good or ill. I remember 20 years ago at the time, uh, looking at ARI's commentary on this issue, which, which I was following very closely. And, and for a brief spell, what I was thinking was, well, okay, so there's a full page ad saying, end the states that sponsor terrorism. But nobody's going to listen to that. The, the government's not actually going to listen to us. They're not going to follow Dr. Peikoff's proposal. Um, so why bother saying it is what I was thinking for a while. But it, it, I soon realized that that's not the point. And I often think people who, um, who think about uh, political commentary make the same mistake of, of assuming that the commentator is for some, re some reason has fiat power over the government and, and what they say is actually going to happen. But no, the point of the commentary is to reach a certain audience. It's not to actually make the change. I mean, if, if we could, it'd be good, but um, it's, it, the issue is we are projecting I think I take it what air I was doing was projecting what a course of action based on proper pol uh, policies and principles would actually look like. And by contrast, then saying, but that's not what we're doing. And so from that, we can expect bad things to happen, which is in fact what did happen. And so uh, the, the, what a concrete policy proposal brings to the table is an illustration uh, to an audience of what an alternate course of action would look like, which the audience can take or leave. They can, they can, um, they can disagree with it, uh, but at least they have a better idea of, of what it would mean for us to act on a very different set of principles. And they might not agree with our principles, but at least now they know what the stake is and some of them, what the stakes are. And some of them might even say, hey, uh, here's some new principles I'd never considered before. And maybe I should think more about what they mean for not only foreign policy, but for other areas of government policy, uh, for life more generally. I mean, I know people who, who actually came into objectivism because they saw the things that ARI was producing on this topic, even if, even if you know, we didn't, <laughs> our foreign policy didn't go like the way we wanted it to. We, we did bring people into the philosophy by illustrating uh, the meaning of these principles. Um, Anything more you wanted to say about that topic before we go on to the, the next one? I'd just say on this, the last thing that you're bringing up, it, that's part of assessing a theory. So a theory is not only about what it's able to predict and foresee, but that is relevant when you're thinking about theories. And here it's that I think what I said about what is going to happen if we continue on the path that was set by George Bush, but George uh, Bush Jr. Um, it is going to be a disaster and really like a disaster. And the fact, it's an unfortunate fact, but the fact that we were right about that helps showcase, oh, so this is a theory about the, in part a philosophical theory is about the nature 
of human beings, the nature of morality, nature of good and evil, it should enable you to foresee certain things. And the fact that it did, that's part of what wins people over, that it's, it's not just, we're saying things that no one else is saying, but it's also, yeah, we're turning out to be right about things. And that, if someone is really thinking about things, is, yeah, maybe I should investigate this theory more. Um, and that's what it means to, to look into objectivism more. So I'm, I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking maybe we should skip our second uh, issue and go straight to the last one. Do you agree? Okay, sure. So this is bringing us really up to date. Um, you talked uh, earlier about how Ayn Rand said uh, someone who's trying to solve an epidemic uh, can't do it overnight. And it turns out the same is true about um, policies regarding epidemics because the most recent major policy proposal that ARI has advanced is one with regard to the recent pandemic, uh, the, the COVID pandemic, and you wrote a white paper on this, Ankar. Uh, and could you start by, could you share a little bit about uh, ARI, the thinking that ARI uh, did that went into the particular policy that you proposed in that paper? What do you mean the thing that ARI did? The thinking, the thinking. Oh, sorry, okay, I'm sorry. sorry. Um, so this was the genesis of the paper was, I mean, obviously the pandemic, but the lockdowns and the idea that a government response or, and particularly an American government's response to a new infectious disease is to hand tremendous, in, in many ways, unprecedented power to state governments to lock citizens down into their own homes to declare which businesses and services are essential and which aren't. So who can work and who can't, whose uh, um, means of living comes to an end, that it can exert this enormous power in the face of an infectious disease. And it's not even that severe an infectious disease. I mean, you could, there have been in history worse infectious diseases than this. It's gonna exert this power for COVID-19. Imagine if we get something even worse than this, the, 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 the amount of control government says that they legitimately possess over our lives. That, so the context was that, and that that is a radical misunderstanding, I mean, that, that's putting it charitably, in a, in a misunderstanding of what the American system of government is, what it means, what proper powers of government would be in the face of a new infectious disease like COVID-19, and what are improper powers. So the focus of the paper was on the, the titles of pro-American, I'm sorry, pro-freedom approach to infectious disease. So notice that it's not um, a pro-freedom approach to healthcare. That would be the, I mean, so there's all kinds of government controls in healthcare that I think are wrong, Ayn Rand certainly thought are wrong, that you, I mean, really, it's part of the separate to say that capitalism means in part a separation of state and economics. That includes economics, includes healthcare, it includes the profession and field of medicine. So that 
the our long-term view is that there should not be government control of healthcare as such. But the, the paper is not a paper about government healthcare. It's a paper about how to think about what are the proper powers of government when you have an infectious, new infectious disease like COVID-19. And that entails that you're going to focus on certain issues and not on others. You always, on these kinds of things, have to be careful not to imply the opposite of what you think. So not in this kind of case, in, in the writing of it, not to imply that government control of healthcare is proper, but nor is the subject why it's improper. And that is, I mean, this is part of what is difficult about policy proposals. It's, they have to be, if they're really gonna be a policy proposal, they have to be focused. Um, and, and particularly if, it, if it's a shorter term measure, it's not, here's how to address all our problems in healthcare. Um, so that's the context of it. And it entailed discussing some things at length, not discussing some things at all, some things only either mention in passing or hinting at kind of what a, better, a proper wider view is of healthcare. And so just to make clear what the proposal was, I mean, Ankar, what your paper was essentially arguing was that we need better laws that define and circumscribe government's powers uh, to quarantine people uh, during a pandemic situation. Uh, this is on the principle that uh, nobody has the right to infect somebody else uh, with, a, with a dangerous disease. And so government has the power to stop people from infecting. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this is going to require some legal codification as to what counts as a threatening infection, what doesn't. Uh, you, you, you don't exercise government quarantine power for just the common cold, but you, you would for something like uh, Ebola. And where does something like COVID fit on that scale? That's something that the law would need to give us some kinds of principles to decide. And our current laws don't do that. And so uh, I, I take it that part of what you were advocating was that if we had more objective laws in this way, even if you hold fixed everything else uh, about our current system, that could actually uh, do something like stop these lockdowns from happening. It could, it could, it could focus government's uh, function on protection of individual rights, uh, of you know finding out who actually poses a threat and only uh, only restricting their freedom, not the freedom of people who are innocent, uh, uh, who are, who've not been proven to pose any kind of medical threat. And part of why I think this was an effective angle was, on the one hand, we have a lot of people who are, uh, who know that there is a real problem with this, with this virus, that it's posing a threat to a lot of people's lives, maybe not as many as Ebola, but certainly a significant number. Um, on the other hand, we have a lot of people who think, well, maybe these lockdowns aren't really the best solution to this problem. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, terrible side effects that they have on people's lives. Uh, people realize even that they're obviously a violation of their liberty. Is there a way to thread this needle? Is there a way to, in which government could help protect those who are threatened without having to violate anybody's liberty? And your paper gives a really well-worked out concrete elaboration of what a policy would look like that would do that, holding fixed other aspects of the system that aren't gonna be changed anytime soon, 
um, that most people don't even want to change. We can have that argument later um, after we've, you know, reformed this more immediate uh, aspect of the government. Is that, a, do you think that's a fair characterization of uh, what you were doing? Yes, and the, the, when you put it as thread the needle, it's as in many of these issues, it's people get locked into false alternatives. And here it would be either you say, oh no, the government has no, should have no role or power in regard to infectious disease. And then their portrait of the people, as you said, who, who recognize, yeah, this is a new and significant infectious disease. It, it does real damage and it causes death. It's something we have to take seriously. There, it's like the alternatives are, oh, you're going to say government has no role here and people are going to just be running around infecting anybody. So, or else, no, if a government has a role, the role is it's got to lock down and take control of everybody's lives and tell them if you can go out or not and if you're allowed to work or not. And the threading the needle is to say, no, both of these are really defective alternatives. And they're not our choice, our choices in between one of these. There's a real role for government power here, but for it to be legitimate and not to go into areas that are completely illegitimate, such as telling people oh, you know, for a year or so you can't work, that it that has to be circumscribed by law. It has to be defined by law. And then to talk about as you talked about some of the details of that. But it is in many of these cases, it's people are locked into false alternatives. And what policy proposals from a radical different perspective is to say, no, these are not your only, or, or in this case, not our only alternatives. This would be a different way for government to function that would take seriously that it's a new infectious disease and yet not take totalitarian control over the economy. So I think we should start to wrap up soon, but I, and I don't think we'll have time to take questions. We haven't gotten too many anyway, but I wanted to ask you one last question, which is a question I think we've gotten uh, from a lot of people in our audience um, on this last issue of, of what's the right thing to advocate during a pandemic. And I think we sometimes get the question, why isn't ARI devoting more resources to uh, using this as an opportunity, say, to uh, push for uh, the end of socialized medicine, or somewhat more plausibly, um, the end of the regulatory state. Uh, examples like the, the, the FDA, which, which arguably did have a role in holding up the, the tests that we needed to be able to combat um, this, this pandemic. And, and we did comment on some of these issues, but it, wasn't, it also wasn't our primary focus. Uh, do you, you want to say a word or two about uh, the issue of focus there? I'll, I'll say a little bit, you can add to it. The, so it's, we don't have at ARI a whole policy wing. Um, we, we just don't have the staff for it to, to name one reason why. So it's not like we have, we write about healthcare and we have specialists doing that uh, day in, day out, year after year. And then the pandemic would be now healthcare has become the front and central issue. So this was a, it's, th this had parallels to 9 11. 
that it's something new, it's significant, and but it was partly significant in the because the government claimed all kinds of powers that I think if you ask people six months before, like can government do this and can they lock down? Most people and sort of across the political spectrum who said, no, government can't, they can't lock people in their house for six months and say you can't work and so. So, but now we had this and that's what's happening. And to understand why this is happening, why it's illegitimate and that it doesn't have to be happening. That was, um, we thought, okay, this is such an unusual situation that at ARI, we need to talk about it, even though we don't talk about healthcare all the time in the sense of having, as I said, like a, like a, a, a policy person or people dealing with healthcare on an ongoing basis. So that it's an exception in that sense that we dealt with it extensively, um, an exception that we think was justified for why we did. But that's part of why you don't see, okay, so where are the white papers on other aspects of healthcare? What should we be doing? If we were an organization that was five times the size with five times the budget, and so and this this became part of central to what we do, you would see things like that. I think it's clear from what we did say and what we've said in the past about medical issues, and you can find past op-eds and so on, on F, about the FDA and things like that, that we oppose government control of healthcare as such. Um, so, the, the, and Ayn Rand did as well, but it's, it's not a focus given what our other focuses are, but this was a, uh, another way to put it, it's an event that transcended healthcare policy and became a national issue and an issue about just the nature of government as such. And wouldn't you say there's also an issue of about communication here, which I mean, you mentioned that six months before the pandemic, nobody would have thought that these kinds of lockdowns were justified. And yet all of a sudden they quickly, many of them quickly uh, were won over to that idea. Um, it makes me think that this is also a lot like 9-11 in that, I mean, there's, there's a kind of strike while the iron is hot effect going on here that people have just adopted this view. Um, they, they didn't have it before. There's an opportunity here to persuade them and to reach them on this one issue, the issue of lockdowns versus an objective uh, po policy of law, which, which uh, in the heat of the moment, they're thinking about. That's not so much the case on something like, should there be government health care? Should there be a regulatory state? I mean, we can talk about those, but and we will talk about them more later for sure, especially as the more of the data comes in, but it's like, that's not the moment. Uh, in just the same way that a lot of other things were not uh, up for debate all of a sudden uh, when 9-11 was happening, but suddenly what's the right foreign policy in the Middle East that was? Yeah, and, it, and there are hot button issues for legitimate reasons. So 9-11 is legitimately really significant. So it's not just, oh, well, it's now front page because people are for some strange reasons fixated on this. Like this is something people should have been thinking about. And the same with COVID about when you've got a government doing this, it's not, I mean, so hot button, sometimes people think it's just, yeah, make, people are making a lot to do about nothing. 
But here it's a hot button issue because it really is significant if government has this kind of power and can exert this kind of control over everyone's lives and the economy as a whole. And so it's, it's in the news for a real reason. And the fact that we can shed light on it is, yeah, it's an opportunity, but and it's an opportunity broadly, it showcases again the power of philosophy. And just as for 9-11, I mean, you said, and I have met people like this too, who've been attracted to ARI and objectivism because of what we had to say about it. And it was a window into the broader worldview because they got the sense that, yeah, we're looking at this very differently and it's coming from a broader, more fundamental perspective that's different. The same happened with COVID. Um, I know people came to ARI and to objectivism and taking it and looking into it much more seriously because again, they got, yeah, this is a different perspective. It's illuminating on this issue, but it's coming from a wider perspective that's different than what I normally hear. Let me check that out. Good. Well, we're we're over time. We should we should wrap up. This has been a really I think yes. fascinating discussion. I hope it's given people a little more insight into uh, how we think about cultural change and uh, persuasion. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to learn a few more things about the ideas that have informed this discussion, we have a list of resources of uh, some of the Ayn Rand essays that we talked about looked at today. Uh, if you want to find out more, so we uh, mentioned two essays of hers about antitrust and tax credit for education. Those are both in The Voice of Reason, her collection uh, of uh, many Ford Hall Forum talks, among other things. Uh, you can get a link to that if you go to bit.ly slash The Voice of Reason. Uh, her short comment about abortion laws that I referenced was in The Objectivist, her periodical in the 1960s. Uh, you can order a copy of that at bit.ly slash The Objectivist. Her essay, The Wreckage of the Consensus, where she talks about the draft, we looked at a lengthy uh, quote from that, is in her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Uh, and uh, a recording of that lecture is actually also on our website. You can listen to it at bit.ly slash rec hyphen consensus. Uh, one or two more items. There's also uh, her proposal on uh, education uh, and also her essay, What Can One Do About uh, Cultural Change? Both of those are in philosophy, who needs it? You can uh, order a copy at bit.ly slash phil hyphen who hyphen needs hyphen it. That's a little long. Uh, and I mentioned also her views on thinking about the context of your audience and what it takes to persuade them, thinking about what they know and what they don't. That's something she talks a lot about in her essay, her course on nonfiction, which is reprinted as a book, The Art of Nonfiction. You can check that out at bit.ly slash The Art of Nonfiction. Last of all, we talked at the end about Ankar's white paper, a, an example of the kind of approach to policy commentary that we have uh, to offer. And that's online at bit.ly slash freedom hyphen infectious. Okay, well, we hope to see you again uh, in the future. Uh, oh, I forgot one last uh, resources. And that's that's a, uh, another podcast that Ankara and, and I did about a year ago, talking about some of these same kinds of issues uh, regarding uh, what it takes to persuade people. Uh, how can we change people's minds about Ayn Rand's controversial ideas? Another kind of insight into our the way we think about the issues that we choose to comment. And that's at bit.ly slash change minds, capital A-R. Okay, so yes, now, if you would like to follow us in the future, if you enjoyed our, our program today, 
uh, you're watching on YouTube, especially please uh, like, share this episode, subscribe to it, click the bell to get notifications, especially if you're watching the recording, please be sure to leave something in the comment section that helps optimize the algorithm. Same thing on Facebook. If you're watching there, like or comment on the episode that you see there, share it with your friends. And if you have questions about issues that came up today, uh, or you'd like to suggest future topics, send us an email at newideal at einran.org. We read everything that comes in, answer many of them. Sometimes we even do topics along the lines that our viewers suggest. So thanks for uh, joining us today. We will be back next week. Uh, thanks, Ankar, very much for this conversation. I hope uh, uh, our viewers got as much out of it as I did. Thanks, man. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.